Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. We are the official podcast of Tennis Canada, members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And remember, you can find us on Twitter at MatchpointCan. You can find me at Ben Lewis SN590. You can find Mike at McIntyre Tennis. And remember, we are also on Instagram. Well, as the break from live ATP and WTA tennis continues, uh, Mike, this time we we check in with a couple of our tennis media colleagues who are both passionate lovers of the sport, and they also have a big social media presence uh, that many of you are likely already familiar with. Yeah, for starters, uh, I stopped in and spoke with Craig Shapiro, who's filled all kinds of roles in his uh, 20-plus years in the sport, including his most recent as a fellow podcast host. Uh, We talk about his newly branded Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast, and about his time working with Andre Agassi, uh, his impression of our up-and-coming Canadian tennis phenoms, and uh, also many of the big-name guests that he's talked to recently on his really solid tennis podcast. Yeah, and I also had the chance to speak with a former guest from last year, Abigail Johnson. Uh, You've probably heard her as a tennis commentator because she's done work for BBC, WTA TV, Amazon Prime Video as well. Just one of those voices that was really making a presence, especially last season. And we, we spoke to her actually last year just after that epic Wimbledon final between Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer. Uh, so great opportunity to, to speak with a few contemporaries this week. Yeah, it's cool to kind of mix things up and, and have two guests who uh, who both have their own unique way of attacking the sport and have something uh, different to offer in, in terms of how they cover and, and promote it. But I find like everyone we talk to just brings something different to the table. And I appreciate, uh, you know, little bits and pieces from, from each of them and how they do their their things, whether it's a podcast or tennis writing or commentating and in Abigail's case and the YouTube work that she's doing. And I mean, I'm a firm believer, and I know you're the same, that there's room for everybody at the table. And, and just like when I'm playing tennis, I try and take the best from tennis players that I watch, not that I ever come close to it, but it's the same with podcasting. I'm always trying to look at what I enjoy and, and what intrigues me that other podcasters are doing. And, and definitely there's things that Craig brings to the table, and definitely there's things that Abigail also does that, um, that I try and put into our podcast as we evolve and, and try and get better at what we do. Yeah, certainly always great to learn from, from fellow journalists and the like who are all doing such a great job, even still like covering aspects of the sport. Well, we don't have live tennis, uh, still finding topics to discuss and uh, we covered plenty of them. And I know you covered a wide range of topics, Mike, in your conversation with Craig Shapiro. Yeah, Craig's interesting. Like I had all sorts of points that I wanted to discuss with him, and I don't even think I got to 50% of them. <laughs> and, and because it kind of just turned into more of a, a chat, and he's a talker, and he's a storyteller, and I kind of got mesmerized by listening to him for a while there and, uh, and just let him go whatever direction he, he went. But definitely someone I think that we're going to have to have on back again in the future because he's got such a wealth of knowledge, uh, more experience, obviously, than us, just uh, the time that he's put in. And I was really intrigued by his story and, and what he's been through over his career covering the sport in different capacities, um, from his tennis writing to his tennis documentaries that he's produced and written um, to most recently the podcast work that he's doing. So let's throw to the interview I had with Craig Shapiro and, uh, and have a listen at this interesting tennis character. 
On this week's episode of Matchpoint Canada, I'm happy to be joined with uh, someone I would describe as a rascal of the tennis podcast world. He's got a great sense of humor, fantastic personality, and he really knows his tennis stuff too. I'm sure you've seen him lately. Craig Shapiro, welcome to Matchpoint Canada. Mike, uh, first time, long time, as we say in the United States. Um, I've listened to you guys, you and Ben, for quite some time, and uh, you know it's nice to finally uh, meet you. Uh, vis-a-vis the World Wide Web. (laughs) Absolutely. It's it's funny. I was saying when I first got on with you, I feel like I know you on some level already just from our interactions on Twitter. You've got a very positive and active personality there, but you've occupied so many different roles in the tennis world. I'm going to try and capture a few of them here uh, as I continue my introduction, but uh, Racket Tech, uh, Racket Stringer, documentary producer and director uh, tennis writer with Racket Magazine, obviously, um, and whose t-shirt you're sporting right now for anyone who's watching. Um, tennis historian, uh, podcast guru. Uh, what am I missing? I'm sure I'm missing a few things in there too. No, man, you know what? Um, <laughs> the, 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 the only thing you're missing is, is, that, is that I had a dad who loved tennis and my dad is probably the straw that stirs this drink you know he's the one who really my dad in the 70s and in the 80s he identified tennis as sort of this badass sport right and he loved which it was at the time and he he loved Arthur Rash and he loved Jimmy Connors and 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 my dad from the time the tennis the U.S. Open went to uh, Flushing Meadow to the tennis center. He ran a trip from where I'm from, Rhode Island, which is, you know, as far as hockey towns go, you know, we, we have a lot, we have a heavy Canadian heritage in Rhode Island, and I come from there. But my dad ran a trip from Rhode Island to the U.S. Open. He filled, at one point, I remember it would be two buses full of just full of people and they, we, we would go every year for Labor Day weekend. That's so awesome. I was, yeah. So I was in, you know, Louis Armstrong stadium for a lot of these big time matches. I was in that grandstand, like hanging over the top. I remember being out at the practice courts and, and um, then, then, you know, we went to tournaments in Philadelphia, which that Philly tournament, particularly in the, 70s and the 80s they called that the grand slam of the winter because everybody played that tournament um it was a big tournament and we're from rhode island so i was a ball kid at the tennis hall of fame and i think my first my first real paid job uh aside from you know shoveling snow i think was literally cleaning up the trash at the Hall of Fame underneath the bleachers. So you got to start somewhere, right? Everyone's got to start somewhere. Man, I, you know, I, I, at, at certain times, you know, uh, I'm certain that Martina Navratilova came in to play an exhibition there during the men's tournament. They would do different things during the Hall of Fame weekend, the induction weekend. So yeah, I was, I was a ball kid there at least two years. And, uh, I grew up in tennis, so, you know, 
The other stuff you said is all true, though. I can't deny it. You have That's that. good. I got a few right. things right there. And, and the parallels. <laughs> no, you did have it. You do have it right. And what I can relate to you on is the fact that it was my dad also that got me hooked on the sport in, in the 80s as a kid with McEnroe and Connors at the tail end of, of their careers. But those were the ones that he was still into. And so those were the two that kind of hooked me on the sport. Um, you've clearly been around uh, tennis uh, longer than your online presence, which I would say I probably first noticed about a year and a half ago. Um, when you really started ramping things up on Twitter, and I would guess around the same time with your your podcast, uh, the Under Review podcast, as it was called at the time. But uh, what got you involved in the sport on the um, social media side of things? What made you transition into the podcast world? No, no. Um, so no, that's a good question. So um, when I was in my mid twenties early, early twenties. I, I was teaching tennis in New York city. I answered an ad that came across the fax machine at the tennis club <laughs> where this, this outfit out of 51st street in New York city was customizing and stringing rackets for, you know, 92% of all the top players in the world. And the guy's name was Jay Schweid and he had found this kind of, he really created this business of customizing and stringing rackets for the pros. And at one time, at, at some juncture and probably around 96, Andre Agassi had a problem with his rackets and this guy, Jay, and if you read the book, the name Roman is in the book. So Roman is like the, he's like the Yoda of racket technicians. And, Jay and Roman fixed Andre's problem. And from that time on, Andre did a deal where someone from Jay's custom stringing traveled with Andre. So Roman had a young child. Jay had a, had a baby and they hired me. I got the job. I had heard about them. I knew who they were. I came in, I was the first person they talked to and against their, probably against their better judgment, they hired me. So you benefited and, from the fact that they were tied to home with the, the kids? No doubt. And, and about six months after I learned how to do everything, you know, I, I, I traveled with Brad and Andre for a very short period of time. I did it for, you know, like, man, I, I have to look, but I think I, if I look at my credentials, I've seen credentials from like Munich, you know, Munich 97. I think 96, part of 96, all in 97, maybe a piece of 98 if I had to look, but, you know. So, so but those, were through, tough, but through, those were tough years for, for Andre there, 97, 98, if I remember correctly. Yeah, no, I have the distinction of being with him when he went from like 6 to like 2.30 or something, whatever it was. What are your memories from that period of time? Because, I mean, I've read his book. I think everyone's read his book. He's pretty open about what he was struggling with during that time. What? What do you recall from those years that, that tipped you off that he was going through a, a difficult period? No, I don't, I don't, I, I don't recall too much. I, I mean, we, I had, for me, it was different. I had great moments. He actually was sort of, you know, I, he, he, I think we played Hanover and he had a tragic tournament. He, I think he like forgot his shoes and, I think he had to borrow like Mal Washington's shoes and he played Todd Martin. He couldn't hit a ball. And I'll never forget. Brad called me and said, Hey man, get your, get your stuff. You're, we're going home. That's it. It's a wrap. 
And then he played those challengers. Do you remember? He played the challengers in Vegas. Yeah, the comeback swing, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, he lost to Leighton Hewitt at in Adelaide. Um, I remember just peppering him with questions at dinner one night. Uh, I don't purport to be like an inside Andre person, but, you know, we, we played – Monte Carlo and and I remember being at the blackjack table with him and he was doubling my bets for me because obviously he had more money than me. Like, Easy for him, right? Well, yeah. you just can't make this stuff up. You know, it was cool. But the bigger part of the story is is that through when 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 the players get onto this program of the racket customization and the racket stringing, that comes through the agents generally speaking the agents like okay this is how we this is how you do it you get put onto the program and and through that i learned, I, I met all the agents i knew the tournament directors the coaches uh, a lot of the players and um i kept those relationships somewhat together and uh in 1998 one of my buddies got me a job at hbo in part because hbo still had wimbledon so I was like in the graphics room at Wimbledon. I worked on inside the NFL for two years and I learned the HBO sports way. And um, from there, I, you know, I, I, you know, I became a storyteller, right? A TV producer. Um, And some of my more interesting credits, at least on tennis side is, is I did documentaries on Pete and on Andre for the tennis channel. Do you, you, do you guys have tennis channel? I think tennis channel is only now uh, working out some sort of deal to get into Canada. Like literally in the past month, I think I read something that that's happening now. Okay. Um, but okay. to that, no, we haven't had tennis channel. I mean, I've seen your Andre documentary just through, um, you know, you know through the links and stuff. Uh, sure. But, uh, but not through the yeah. tennis channel. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I, 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 I would, the USA network here in the United States, I, I, um, would produce and put together pieces that would roll out during the tournaments. You know, when one that comes to mind is I remember going to Indianapolis, Brad Gilbert had just started working with Andy Roddick and that was the story. So I went to Indianapolis for the USA network. I interviewed Andy and Brad actually together in the locker room there. And that was sort of fun. I, so, but I never could quite find a great lane in live tennis. I hate being in a TV truck. I hate it with, I just hate it. I I can't stand it. And people um, think it's glamorous working in this industry, being at events and whatnot, but you often don't get to leave that truck. Do you? People that like it are, and they're great at it and they're doing something that's pretty cool, man. I, you know what I love to do? I like to take friends to the TV truck and show them how everything works. Right. And say hi to people. And then I leave. I can't, I get nervous in the TV truck. So I, um, I didn't find a great lane in live TV and um, about 20 months ago now at the urging of a friend, uh, we started the under review tennis podcast. And from the jump, I was able to book really good, really good guests. I, I had done a show for the, I had done a show for the tennis channel called the best of five. And it was just a way to format the show. And I talked to a guy from the, from the NFL who actually had a hockey podcast and 
it's called the Puck Podcast. So they do three periods. And so you've, got like, your oh. five, you've got your five sets. So I was like, all right, man, well, let's do, I'm going to do a five-set format. And people seem to really like our format. Um, and really all I'm doing is the interviews that I would typically do when I'm doing my do- when I'm when I'm doing documentaries, when I'm, when I'm doing interviews. And it's just, it, it, you know, I mean, listen, we're not a smash hit, but it's been really well received. I came right out of the box with Brad Gilbert, then Wimbledon with, you know, then I had Jeff Tarango, who, you know, infamously got booted from Wimbledon. His wife punched uh, the umpire, Bruno Rabot in the face <laughs> at the press conference. You can't make that stuff up. Um, I, I talked to Nicholas Pereira mid-US Open in 2018 and then the following week Serena melted down against Osaka so I had Ashley Harkle Road come on the show because she shared she was a player top top 50 in the world and she shared a agent she had the same agent Jill Smoller with Serena and I I had it in my mind that you know the Serena maybe one will lead to the other no I had it in my mind that the Serena camp had become a pressure cooker and the pressure was what the pressure of you know Sasha buy-in in Osaka's box and you know Serena had all this pressure to break this record and and she kept getting like you know mega tight so I, I had Ashley Harkowood on then I had Tommy Haas on you know I've I've been we've been fortunate I did a, I've done a lot of interviews with a lot of you know tennis tennis's most you know, illumin- tennis is illuminaries and some of the most interesting people in the sport. Yeah, you, you've got no shortage of great names on the podcast, man. I got to say this. Uh, and, you know, I've been fortunate. Me and Ben have been fortunate to uh, to get some great names as well. But then I look over at you and I'm like, all right, it kind of pushes us to try even harder, right? It's like motivating to see other podcasters who are doing great things and great, getting great guests. And uh, I really like that about your, your podcast, um, you know, whether it was under review or now the Craig – uh, Shapiro Tennis Podcast, which you've started with a bang with your first three guests, getting uh, McEnroe and even Isovic, and most recently uh, Evgeny Kafelnikov. So keep it going, man. I can't wait to see what comes next. And and on that note, um, where did the rebranding idea come from to uh, to change the name of the podcast recently? You know, my partner quit and he stopped working. Um, he stopped working on the show in January and we've yet to be able to come to a, uh, you know, an agreement to just kind of work him out. So I just kind of got impatient and just, just rocked the new show. But the other, one of my friends created a new logo and branding for me. Um, un, uh, he, he was un, unprovoked. So he showed me this, my friend Phil Bichel, and he showed me the branding, and I was like, "Oh, damn, that's cool. Let's 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 go with that." Because when I we when we started under review, it really was um, was uh, quickly. We did it really fast. So this is a little bit more of a cooler look, I think. Yeah, well, you can't beat the beard, man. It looks great on those buttons that you have going on. Hey, listen, uh, Andre, Pete, you were around for their their heyday and that great rivalry that it was at the time. Recently, I was engaging with some listeners on Twitter who were debating who was the greatest American between the two of them. 
uh, I put something out there. Well, you know, Sampras has the 14 slams. And at the end of the day, no matter what potential Andre had or what he could have done if he had been more committed at times, at the end of the day, Pete's got that, that well, the record at the time anyways of 14 slams, which seems so unbreakable for a while. How do you stack up that, that rivalry between the two? And does one stand out to you over the other? Um, as an aside, just to continue the uh, I guess bragging, but I actually, Pete had a problem with his guys at one juncture and came to us. And I actually traveled with Pete and Paul. I went to, we, I went to San Jose, Pete won the tournament and I went to Philly and he beat Enquist in the tournament. Then he went back to his original guy who he's, who he was with forever. Uh, Nate from uh, Nate. Uh, I forgot Nate's last name, but, I did travel with Pete. Pete strung his rackets the heart the, with the thinnest natural gut they made. So generally speaking, it's eight, 17 gauge gut is the thinnest. Pete got 18 gauge. And he pulled the, pulled the strings the tightest the machine could go. So, you know, Paul Anacone would come into your hotel room, you'd be stringing the racket, and the, the gut would shred right on the machine. <laughs> it was the crazy. Um, I kind of have a policy of not in, in all sports, not just tennis of not comparing athletes, uh, not comparing, you know, athletes and generations. Um, I, I love New York and LA for different reasons. I don't think one's better than the other. So I'm not going to get an answer I love on that Pete one. In his career and Andre in his career, no, no, no. I, I, I don't. I think that. Listen. I mean, I, the, the way Brad talked about it, Pete was a tough out for Andre. Um, Andre won all four slams and Olympic gold. Pete won almost everything he played, and you know, I, I, I try not to compare them. I think, I think I don't just I don't think counting counting majors does does it justice. Um, Andre had like, you know, you know, had the greatest ball striker there was at that moment in time. Pete had the greatest serve. His forehand was unbelievable. He was, man, when Pete walked into a room in 1998, you felt like Muhammad Ali was walking into the room. Like he was bad to the bone. Andre, everybody copied him from the, you know, from when he was around and he was playing good tennis, it was magic. 1995 Andre at the Australian Open, oh man, I mean, doesn't get better. When when they played that uh, 2001, I think, uh, four set breaker, 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 breaker at yeah, the no US Open. Service, yeah. Woo, man, I mean, <laughs> that's why I don't pick, I, I, I can't really pick. Uh, I love I love them both for for what they what they did and um, there was like you know there were like guys that didn't really like each other that much and um, they had a hard time hiding it it seemed to me <laughs> and I even like that like I hate when these guys play like business partners and, it, and I, I, yeah I feel the same in boxing like I like it when there's some static so. Not when they're like, when they're like, oh, well, he's so great. And we went up for dinner and stuff like that. You know, like 
Yeah. Pete and Andre, a bit of, uh, animosity and rivalry there, something you can spark that rivalry with. Hey, man, Pete and Andre weren't having that many dinners together, I'll tell you that. You know, okay. I, think they try, I think they tried, and I don't think it went that good. <laughs> uh, here in Canada, we're hoping one day we can brag about having a one-two combo like that. And uh, maybe we're on our way because things have definitely turned in our favor in the last few years. What are your thoughts when you look up north here in Canada? What are your thoughts on what's going on? What uh, player is or players are getting you excited about what we're doing here in Canada these days? First of all, I wish that Toronto had figured out a way to keep the, the Raptors together. I love that team. You and me both. And, I mean, and what a year that was for you with Bianca and Felix and the Toronto Raptors was just just the coolest thing. Um, I love Canada. <laughs> so, But, yeah, no, I, lo- I, I think, um, you know, Felix in 2018 to me was – just, you know, I can remember talking with one of Novak's inside guys at, at Indian Wells, like, man, this guy's forehand is so good. He's so good. And Shapovalov, you know, what a bouncy body he has. Um, I think he is outstanding. Um, he played that rough match against Monfi at the U.S. Open, and he just couldn't get through. But Mofi, I think, was trying to impress his, you know, he was trying to impress his girlfriend. And he was playing really well with Svitolina in the box. We were at that match. Um, I love the way Shapovalov plays. And I guess, is Yuzny his coach? That's correct. Yeah, yeah and he's playing really well with Yuzny. Um, I watched Felix practice with Warinka right before the Indian Wells uh, got shut down. And I didn't think they had a great practice, but, you know, um, I love those. I love those two players a lot. Um, and then, you know, what can you say about Bianca Andreescu? I mean, that was just one of the most exhilarating things of all time. And you know, we got. I got very lucky, and you know, I got to talk with her the Friday, the media day, right before the U.S. Open began, and. Um, you know, that's a thrill. I mean, we've, we've, I've actually had the last two Grand Slam win, the major winners on the women's side. I had Sophia Kennan and I had Bianca, but I, yep. I we love share that. We those share that in common, I, having, having those two as, as guests. And it, it is always nice when you great. talk with someone and you build a rapport with someone and, and both of those young women are fantastic. And then you see them go on to something so epic and you can, you know, you can just, feel an extra amount of joy for someone like that that you've connected with before they they hit it i like to run the tape back and listen and be like oh shoot she knew she was coming like you knew she she didn't she didn't sound like somebody that was going to lose a match (laughs) well bianca's confidence was definitely rising after that rogers cup victory and we're all really excited whenever tennis does resume can't wait to see how she picks up and uh, and she's done well in the past with long layoffs and then coming in hot so we'll see if she's able to maintain that uh I, yeah, I, don't I, think, think sorry. I don't think I've seen you up in, in Canada at the Rogers. Have you ever attended the Rogers Cup or, or been to that? Well, I was, was going to tell you, um, I've only been once that I can recall. And my buddy and I drove from New York to Montreal in, I think, 2000. You got to help me. I think it was 2007. And uh, he was chasing this girl. And there were four of us. We went to the tennis 
one of the first nights of uh, I think it was the Du Maurier. Was it the Du yeah, Maurier? They called it. The, it was sponsored by a cigarette company. Yeah, actually. it was great. And uh, and we saw Frank Dancevich beat Delpo in three rough sets, and it was one of the greatest. I think we were in Montreal for like three or four days, but I it was a great trip. And, um, you know, I'm happy that Canadian tennis is, uh, is just flying, man. I mean, I, I was just working my way back in when Jeannie started playing well. So I didn't really have my eye on her, um, uh, pun, pun intended, but she, um, you know, she was playing great, great tennis and, you know, when she fell on her head, that seemed to really do her in. Um, it seemed like she was starting to make some progress that summer. She was playing well at the Open and, and having fun playing mix with Nick Kyrgios, too. And uh, we'll never know the full impact of that one. But, it, yeah, it clearly hasn't been the same for Jeannie on the court since then. No, but, you know, she's in Vegas working hard, man. She works with Andres, you know, with Andres Gill. And I think she lives there, which – is is interesting but she's in vegas uh training and um listen man she got to eight i think she got to five in the world right that's yeah, correct if you, get yeah. to, if you get to five that's unbelievable so yeah, yeah, yeah. we've talked to Jeannie several times and i don't think people realize how hard she works uh in practice and uh even last summer at the rogers cup when when she went out she stuck around the entire week training hard multiple times a day and people just don't see that. People are so quick to judge, right? They don't. They don't look beyond what uh, what they assume. I interviewed Michael Joyce, and and we talked extensively about her. Um, it definitely seems like she took her eye off the ball with him at some point. You know, we're, you know, uh, but he said that they had some really, they had some really good progress from time to time. Um, for what for they had they they had a big training block and then she went from like you know 140 to 70 and was playing pretty well and then they stopped working together she kind of just dipped out and I don't think she won a match for like almost a year it seemed like yeah she had a tough one back in uh in 2000 well last year 2019 for sure right. um hey tell me Craig what what do you have on the horizon with your your tennis podcast in terms of guests or upcoming um you know people we can look forward to you talking with in the coming weeks I um te- I have Andres Gomez on deck. I talked to Barbara Stritsova this morning. I had a gr- I had a great talk with Andres Gomez because this year is the 30th anniversary of him beating Andre at the French Open. So I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out how to roll it out if I could do it on the day of the you know I'm trying to figure that out. But I had a great talk with him and he actually told an unbelievable story about how he had he had lost weight to get ready for the tournament but also he had moved to he had started stringing his racket way looser and he basically shared that i don't know if you know this but john McEnroe famously played with very loose strings and andres basically took credit for it and said you know McEnroe picked up my racket and was like, man, how do you play with it this loose? He's like, oh, I think it feels good. And he said that Max started playing with the racket loose. And th- then he started playing with it loose. Um, 
that he had done that earlier on, but I have to do the math on that to see if that really makes sense. But well, you, I had, think, you think that tennis players would try all sorts of things like that in their own time, but I guess maybe they're just such creatures of comfort that they just stick with what's good, I guess. You know, um, but he, I don't know, but he told, a, he told a great story about, about, about that. And, um, you know, that match, you know, it, that match is actually, that was a tough match. Andre played hard. I mean that he did. He had to. He had to go out and win that match. It seems like in the history books, the way the book is written, Andre was supposed to win and didn't play well. But I think Andre played well. Um, and when it got to those crunch times, Andres Gomez served really well. He hit the ball great. He had a he had a new coach, a guy named Pato Rodriguez, with Coach Jose Luis Clerk. That was fun. And then this morning, Barbora was very cool. And I saw, uh, I saw your teaser video. The trailers for that looks really good. Yeah, well, you know, she's been interviewed a lot. So I was trying to when I researched to interview her, I was like trying to find some ways in to Something you know different. really yeah well just to really see like. You know, she's like, well, you know, I was 50 in the world, then I went to 250. She, right? She came on the scene. She's one of the greatest juniors. She'd beaten Sharapova at the Australian Open. Uh, juniors, she had, you know, come onto the scene like a lightning bolt. Got to 50 in the world. She goes to 250. And she gets married at 20 years old. And she was really nowhere until it seems like she pulled the plug on the marriage. So I asked her about, I asked her a little bit about that. And, um, you know, she didn't necessarily confirm nor deny, but, you know, she kind of, you, you could see that, you know, she kind of got a kick out of that she had been married at 20, which is like, you know, really pretty cavalier in 2020 not that many people would do that so she was married she married a player who became her coach and sounded like a mess and that was fun i really enjoyed talking with her she's very funky she just launched her own podcast in czech republic um we talked about that uh i have everybody's launching a tennis podcast these days it seems eh? yeah you know what um and you i try to just for every one of them it seems too I try to just focus on my show and just kind of not seems like there's an arm race for guests that everyone's trying to get the best guests and who they think are the best guests. And I trying to stay with, you know, with the original plan, which was to talk to the most interesting people in the sport and yeah, get, get some good stories and, and talk to the, you know, talk to the people that, you know, I think have the best are the best interviews. And um, sometimes I, I veer from that and I'm like, well, man, you know, I got to figure out a way to get Serena Williams or Novak. And I, I am, you know, I'm trying to get those, get those kind of players and, and get those active players. Excuse me. It's really, really hard to um, book active players. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm I'm gonna try to knock them down sooner or later. Yeah, but I'm I do sure you, think that I'm sure you'll get to them. But I do think that the best the best interviews are players that have finished playing. I think yeah. that when yeah, their guards are 
they got they, they've lived their lives they've got more to share and um, speak more freely speak more freely exactly yeah but well yeah well I, i'm actually gonna i'm gonna go try to make a play to talk to riley opelka riley opelka and i didn't know this is an interesting guy and he's got uh, lots to say he's got a lot a lot of opinions and uh even just recently talking about basically critiquing the atp for how they've handled the um the the virus shutdown and the hiatus here so yeah he'd keep you busy for sure the more interesting thing to me about him was that I learned uh, I learned that he is like a clothing guy, like a shopper, and he's a uh, art he's an art collector, and he's interested in going to see galleries and stuff. Um, that sounds like Milos uh, Raonic. Maybe it's something with the big servers that they've got a thing for art. I don't know. That's funny. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't I, I don't know. Um, I'd like to talk to Milos. I'd like to talk with, um, man, you know, I, I would, I would like to talk to, you know, one of the more interesting people to me, I'd like to hear from Grant Connell. I'd like to hear from, you know, I'd like to talk to Jeannie you know, just to really have like kind of a interesting conversation about, you know, going from five to, you know, almost off the tour and, you know, what's kind of motivating her now. Um, so I'm going to try, I mean, the, the, the agents don't seem very receptive, generally speaking, and yeah. that's always disappointing, but I'm not going to stop trying. <laughs> well, now, now's a good time to try because, like you said earlier, it's tough when they're in competition, and right now everyone's got time. So that's one thing that plays to, to your favor, to our favor, anyone in the podcast world who's trying to get guests. And it's nice to hear you're trying to get some Canadians on board. I like that. I think a little bit more red and white content couldn't hurt, right? Man, I've been, you know, I, I've been to Edmonton. I've been to Toronto. I've been to, you know, Montreal multiple times for different sporting events that one time for tennis, but uh, I did stories for HBO on Arturo Gotti who has Montreal roots, the boxer who died. And um, I went, I, I worked for HBO at many boxing matches in Montreal. So yeah, I love Canada. Um, John Tory's uh, daughter, Jess Tory, is a friend of mine. And, um, you know, I love Canada, man. Right <laughs> if, if this idiot president wins again, <laughs> I, I may be looking for uh, – I may need you to, you know, sponsor me to get up I was up just going to say I'll sponsor your application for sure. Oh, my God. But you'll have to share some of your tennis guests with me. Uh, Craig, thank you so much for, for taking the time. For those who are looking to follow Craig on Instagram, C-Shop Tennis Pod. And on, and on Twitter, sorry, uh, Craig E. Shapiro 1 is where you can find him. It's the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. It will not disappoint you. And, Craig, we just scratched the surface today, so you're most definitely going to have to promise me you're going to come back and talk to us again uh, sometime hey man, soon. Anytime. I love, I love talking with you. That was great. Beautiful. Thanks a lot. There you have it. Mike's interview with uh, Craig Shapiro, uh, host of a couple different podcasts and now just recently hosting the Craig Shapiro tennis podcast. And I understand as well, this is the first time you actually held an interview through zoom. And I would say it was a very successful one. 
I, I thank you. I've had so many Zoom chats with family and friends, uh, hockey teammates even. Uh, and, it, you know, we've been looking, you and I, uh, obviously, at, at how our podcast can continue to, to be as strong as ever, um, despite the fact that you and I haven't gotten together now in, uh, in a couple of months. And uh, I felt like this was a great idea just because the audio was, was fantastic doing it this way. But it was also cool to have the video aspect on and, and have a, a look at who I was talking to, which mm-hmm. normally is not the case for us. So that was kind of fun. And uh, we've got the video from that. And, and who knows, maybe we'll start doing something with some, some video options as well, just to throw another level into uh, the podcast and, and what we do. But I really liked it. I felt it was easier to connect sort of on a personal level when you can see who you're talking to and uh, and just made it a little bit more uh, more personable and and more easygoing and uh, and he was a super great guy to to chat with like just what a character I think I called him a rascal in my introduction because <laughs> yeah. he he kind of is he kind of breaks the mold of what you would expect um, and he brings something and offers something unique to the way that he tells the stories with the people that he interviews and I mean since he's rebranded as the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. He started out with some really great guests, and, and that's what happens when you've been in the sport for as long as he's been in. Your, your tennis Rolodex, so to speak, your catalog of, of contacts must be just so extensive, and I know we're building ours up, and it, it gets bigger all the time, but there, there are a few people I'm kind of jealous of in terms of how many contacts they have, and, and Craig's definitely one of those those people. Yeah, certainly a, a veteran of this sport in terms of covering it. I was very kind of fascinated uh, listening uh, as you guys were sort of delving into uh, the Sampras-Agassi rivalry, which is, of course, a classic. And my memories aren't as firm of that rivalry as they are for, say, a, a Federer versus Nadal. But uh, bringing, bringing up that U.S. Open match from uh, 2001, it was when Sampras prevailed. I think it was a quarterfinal match and they played all mm-hmm. these tie breaks. That was a match that kind of resonated in my mind because I was a little bit older at that time of that match. And uh, of course he was like right in the middle of it, which is really cool. I loved that rivalry. And, and I think the rivalries that you get attached to as, as a kid or a teenager, nothing will ever top that. Like when I think back to all the sports I love, like hockey with Gretzky and Lemieux, um, you know, I was big into boxing as a kid because my, my dad watched that and like Hagler and, and Hearns and then, you know, Mike Tyson, the Vander Holyfield. Mm. And, and in tennis, Sampras and Agassi, all these rivalries um, when I was a kid, and nothing really comes close to that. And I think it's because I'm just grown up and you become more responsible and mature and all these kind of things. And you lose some of that, you know, zest and love for, for the sports the same way you do when you're a kid. You, you know, you don't idolize the athletes anymore when you realize they're the same age or, in my case, younger <laughs> often. Right. Um, but, but that Sampras-Agassi one was always super compelling. And as Craig said, something that was so wonderful about it was there was a little bit of an edginess between them. I I wouldn't say they were like enemies or anything like that, but, but they weren't best friends either. And uh, they definitely rubbed each other the wrong way at times as well. And that kind of adds to that compelling storyline. You got two people that are so different that have a little bit of, of, you know, rough around the edges kind of relationship. And and that makes it more compelling. And, um, and so, yeah, just hearing some of his stories from back in the day, and and uh, and I'm sure he's got many more that probably aren't you know appropriate for a podcast such as ours, but um, um, maybe he'll share off the air sometime with me. 
Yeah, well, it's funny, as we uh, started this podcast, we were just talking about uh, the Last Dance documentary, which I'm sure so many sports fans, uh, hopefully people who are listening to this podcast now too, uh, have been watching Michael Jordan and his Chicago Bulls in the 1990s and and seeing the super fearsome rivalries of that day and and rivalries when Jordan's Bulls were going up against Isaiah Thomas's Pistons and then kind of reflecting that it's a little different in terms of the relationship uh, when we look at a Federer versus a Nadal and, and these guys seem like they have such good friendly relationships, you know, sharing a, an Instagram live chat during uh, during quarantine, something that sometimes wouldn't exist between fellow athletes who compete against one another. Yeah, the Michael Jordan documentary is making me want, and I know we've talked about this, something similar uh, in the tennis world. But, you know, I don't think something big three related would really do it for me because, as you're mentioning, there isn't enough sort of tension there. But if you want to go back and give me like a Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, something from that era, or even a Sampras Agassi, uh, I'd be all for that because I feel like you need to have some of that drama um, to, uh, and not that I live for drama, but <laughs> something that gives a little bit more of a compelling story to it aside from just the great sports results and competition on the court or on the field or whatever the sport may be. But, um, yeah, The Last Dance has been just gripping, gripping uh, television for me to watch. I'm not even a huge basketball fan, but I can't help but get into it. And, and neither of us have actually finished it. So I'm, I almost I want to watch the last couple episodes, but then I almost don't because then it's on to what, you know, what's going to fill that void for me right now. Yeah, that's true. Granted, I, I think we both kind of know how it ends. Uh, in terms of the Chicago Bulls and that final season, it's called The Last Dance for for a reason. But yeah, it's certainly been gripping, gripping uh, television. And uh, we're hopeful we could see some kind of great tennis documentary, whether you're document, documenting, say, the, the Williams sisters and their rise and takeover of the sport. I don't know if something could be done where it's big three or more specific to one of those players, uh, but just shine the light on tennis a little bit more. We'll do a documentary about the rise of Canadian tennis one day. How's that? Oh, that's that's fantastic. I mean, we have we have the one Grand Slam champion already, and uh, fingers crossed, we're going to see more of them in the coming years. Um, as as we continue uh, on Matchpoint Canada, I had the chance this week to speak with a tennis commentator, and we focused on women's tennis for this conversation. Abigail Johnson, uh, who is growing her brand uh, rapidly, I would say, uh, as a commentator in the sport. You can hear her on WT WT. TV when we do get back to live tennis, BBC as well, Amazon Prime Video. You can follow her on at Abigail Tennis. Uh, here's my conversation with Abigail Johnson. Now happy to be joined by our next guest. We've had her on the program before. She's a tennis commentator, and you may have heard her voice on BBC, BT Sport, Amazon Prime Video, or commentating matches with WTA TV. Abigail Johnson, uh, thanks so much for, for joining us this week on Matchpoint Canada. No problem. Thank you for having me. Great to speak to you. Yeah, great to speak with you. And I, I guess I'd, I'd love to just get an update on, on your life and, and what's been going on since it's it's been over two months since all tennis has been on hold, of course. What have you been doing, uh, I guess, since the ATP and WTA paused their campaigns? And uh, have you been able to keep busy in quarantine uh, without live tennis? Wow, it's crazy, you know, to think it's been two months because at first the time seemed to go quite slowly. Mm-hmm. And then I think when we hit April, it just flew. And I can't believe we're midway through May. Um, I, At the beginning, I was kind of wondering, well, how long is this going to go on for? What do I do with myself? But it's been quite a different kind of routine. 
Um, I've done a lot of exercising, a lot of running, just kind of working on my health and fitness for the time when tennis does come back and it goes out the window again. So just kind of making the most of this time, I guess. Um, Sleeping a bit more than I usually would. Uh, but also, you know, I've just got back to playing tennis because uh, you're allowed to within households now in the UK, which is nice. Uh, yeah, getting that exercise in. But doing my uh, YouTube channel as well, I've started just recently a, a talk show where I get a different tennis guest on each week uh, to talk to them about their careers, if it's a player or different things they do within tennis. But that's been nice just to kind of keep myself within the game a bit. I know there's not much going on in terms of tennis action. Uh, but, yeah, just, just kind of keeping myself in things for, for when things kick off again. How about you? Um, well, thanks. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I, I would say I've been uh, somewhat active in the health, health and fitness realm. Just uh, obviously when you're stuck at home, you don't want to feel like you're kind of melting into your couch on, on the sofa day after day, sure. just sort of watching Netflix. And once I got through, I guess, a few of my favorite shows uh, settled into a, a nice routine of, of doing some morning fitness. And uh, we've been fortunate with Matchpoint Canada to be able to continue our podcast. And I can still record in studio once a week, which uh, has really been a blessing and we've been fortunate to to get a hold of so many great guests and and try out some new things during this time so uh, obviously it's a frightening and confusing time but I I think Mm. now that over two months has passed uh, some of us are hopefully getting and settling into routines and and now at least in our province of Ontario we're Toronto based uh, our our tennis courts at least certain clubs are are opening up so avid tennis players are slowly getting on back on the courts this week this week which is uh, fantastic. Oh, nice. Good to hear. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And I'll I'll mention just to our listeners, uh, because you have great content on YouTube, if you want to find Abigail Johnson's YouTube content, it is The Tennis Vlog. I wanted to ask a a bit about your background just in the sport of of journalism. And when Mm -hmm. did you first uh, begin in in the journalistic field? And uh, did you always have a passion for tennis? Oh, yeah, it's an interesting story because I got started quite early. Uh, My passion for tennis began properly, I guess, when I was around the age of 10. I have early memories of of watching Wimbledon, particularly Venus Williams beating Marion Bartoli in the 2007 Wimbledon final. That's my first early memory. Mm. And I got very passionately involved in the sport. Uh, but for a while, I didn't want, know what I wanted to do uh, with myself as a career. And when I reached the age of about 18, I thought, well, no, 17, I thought, well, I, I like writing. I love tennis. Why don't I try and combine the two things? So, uh, yeah, when I was about 17, I started just writing blog posts, website posts for whoever would take me online. And uh, that got me set up for, for when I was 18, uh, livetennis.com. Some of you might know the website. Uh, were advertising for for a paid writing position, and I, I was able to go to them and show them what I'd done so far, and and I was able to, to take a job with them for a year or so, and at the same time I went to university to study sports journalism because I also had ambitions in the broadcast world, but I had no experience in broadcast, so that was kind of where I got my first taste of TV and radio, and and I was told that I had quite a natural flair for that and it was something that I should look into Um, but I guess things really kicked off on the commentary front uh, when I was about 21 and I've got to give a shout out to my friend Michael McCann because it's really him that got me through the door Uh, my friend Michael was doing commentary for the WTA Uh, Michael's a great broadcaster but he majorly works in cricket and other sports so his tennis knowledge 
wasn't as progressed as mine. So when he had tennis matches, he, he would come to me and say, hey, do you know these players? What can you tell me about them? And I'd send him some match notes. Uh, and so when Michael moved on from the WTA and, and got a job with being sports and Qatar, uh, he asked if I would like him to put me forward to the people he'd been working for. I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Because I, I'd always had these dreams of being a commentator, but I didn't really... I didn't see a road into it because, you know, so many ex-players and stuff do commentary. Right. And I thought, well, if I, if I work really hard in writing and if I meet the right people, maybe when I'm in my 30s, you know, a few years down the road, I'm, I might get a shot at the commentating thing. Um, but I went along to this trial at the place where Michael had been working and they said that they'd take me on as a freelancer. So that's how I got on board for the WTA commentary and other stuff with the BBC, for example, has led on from there. So I, I am grateful for, I think, um, being in the right places at the right time. But I did have to, to work hard to put myself in a position w where I was hireable, um, if that's even a word, you know, and, and was able to be taken on in those opportunities. So, yeah, I'm really grateful for where I am now and for some of the amazing things I've been able to do quite early on. Yeah, that's fantastic, and you, you certainly do have a natural flair for it. And it felt like we were seeing all all this uh, momentum uh, fr from you just uh, in the latter half of 2019. I felt like I was hearing your voice on on a lot of matches, and uh, I gather you're probably commentating in, in 2020. Do, do you feel like there was a bit of a halt in momentum, and uh, are, are you confident, I guess, you can get right back in the booth when tennis does return? Yeah, it's such a shame, you know, because uh, 2019 was my, my first full year of commentary. So I started 2018, but it was the first time I'd done it year round. And um, I branched out from WTA. I did some stuff on BBC. I did my first ATP Challenger, which I loved, you know, being on site and chatting to the players and the coaches as well. And just getting that extra insight that you can put into the commentary. I think it does make a real difference when you're on site as opposed to in a studio in London somewhere or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was great and i did have more similar things lined up for this year um the surbiton trophy at the beginning of, of the grass court season was going to be streamed by bbc and i was lined up for that um, so definitely i had a lot of exciting things planned and it's come to a halt but you know it is the same for everyone we're all in the same boat so with the youtube and stuff i'm just trying to to keep in the swing of things not get too rusty and hopefully be in a good place for when things start up because as i freelance i think i've still got you know, one shift or gig books in back end of the year, but I'm not too confident will take place. But, you know, you've just got to keep yourself going and, and mm -hmm. do what you can. And hopefully, you know, if you if you keep yourself in the groove, then you'll be in an all right place to, to pick up again when things get going. So, yeah, I'm just staying hopeful. Certainly. And uh, we, we hope tennis will be in an all right place uh, when it resumes a, as well. I'm sure many fans are, are itching to watch live tennis again. And we've seen it in, in little spots, but it really hasn't quite been the same. And I, I know since you've done a lot of WTA TV matches, uh, I, I wanted to have a conversation about maybe some of our topics on the WTA today, obviously, even though it's on, on hold. And I, I guess the first subject I wanted to touch on is, is parody, because it's it's generally what we talk about in the differences between the two tours is that we see three three men kind of dominate one side of the equation on the ATP. And, and then on the WTA side, we, we have every given tournament you feel like anybody can win and, and any grand yeah. slam title, you feel like anybody can win. I just wanted uh, uh, you to maybe share your perspective. If you think that's a positive for the sport and, and maybe why is that? I think, you know, it's always going to be subjective and I think there are always going to be pros and cons. So I think it's a great thing on the WTA that you have 
all these champions for the entertainment aspect. So people that love the sport are going to be gripped. They're going to be interested in keeping coming back and watching more because there is not just so much uncertainty, but so much talent. If you look at the depth of the top 100, I mean, I was scrolling down the rankings uh, just a short while ago and all the way down. And even outside of the top 100, there are notable names. There are players that have caused upsets. There are players with intriguing game styles. Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing is really good. So I think that does keep people coming back for more. Um, But there is also... When you, ha- when you look across the, at the guys, you know, and you have the big three, they are headline draws, they're big stories, and they take tennis and they, and they make it, you know, a, a global headline. They really uh, promote tennis as a sport and put it higher up the rankings. And I think, you know, outside of Serena Williams on the WTA side of Venus, you know, who has done tremendous amounts as well, we're still looking for that big-name player who, who can step up and who can be a consistent draw and who can be someone that the, the media are gravitating towards, who they're promoting, you know, and who can, who can really put tennis on the map and, mm-hmm. you know, promote it just not just within the sporting world, but, you know, to people that aren't as familiar with tennis because you, you want things that are going to draw people in. The unpredictability and the excitement are great for people that are already into the sport. But when you're looking to attract new fans and followers, they do like to have a name that they can remember, that they can track the progress of, and that they can see, you know, which of these other players are going to be able to knock them off the top spot. So, yeah, I, I think overall there are, there are pros and cons with it. And for, for the average tennis fan, you know, the unpredictability is probably quite enjoyed um, but for, for the promotion of the sport. And, um, yeah, for other reasons as well, I do think that we would like to see one or two stepping up and showing more consistency and showing themselves as a player to beat. And to be fair, you know, within the past 12 months, I've sensed a couple of players inching towards that position where, you know, they can be a household name, they can sustain form, not just over a period of months, but over a period of years. So I'm really looking forward to tennis getting back on the road so we can see which of those players who've shown promise can capitalize on that long term. Yeah, certainly. Well, I, I'll have to ask you uh, what, what names are, are maybe on your mind in that sense. I, I suppose I have a couple. We, I mean, there's, there's a Canadian bias here in, in the feeling that Bianca Andreescu, when, when she does play, is an absolute force to be reckoned with. And another name coming, mm-hmm. coming to mind, uh, who's obviously still very young and already has, has two Grand Slam titles to her name, is, is Naomi Osaka. And, and mm-hmm. then I'm, I'm looking at like this young upstart in, in Sophia Kennan, who, of course, won the Australian Open and and that, mm-hmm. that that discussion of sort of getting these household names the the only sort of problem I encountered with Sophia Kennan winning the Australian Open kudos to her was I had friends sort of asking me after she won who who is she and and people weren't yeah. really familiar yet so I, I wonder if she can become that familiar name to to casual fans on the outside and not not in the inner circle of the tennis community. Yeah, absolutely. Because for many of us, you know, even I, I commentated on Sophia Kennan last year and it was still a tremendous surprise. At the outset of the tournament, I wouldn't have picked her. Once we got going, you know, you can sense things uh, and she did look like a, a front runner at, uh, nearer the back end of the tournament. But yeah, it is something to take into consideration um, in, in terms of which of these players can step up. You know, I had a couple of the, a couple of the same names in my mind as you, so great minds and all that. <laughs> uh, but uh, there are, I think when you're looking at players that can really step up and assert themselves and be consistent, there are a couple of things you really have to take into consideration. Uh, the first is game style. Um, and at the moment, 
Uh, we're not in the days of 2012, 2013, when you had Serena Sharapova as a ranker at the top, and it was very much a baseline power game that was dominating. Mm-hmm. I think we've moved on slightly. Um, I haven't watched too much tennis, actually, during lockdown. I've taken a bit of a break, but I have seen some matches from around that time, and it's never been more evident to me how the particularly the WTA game has moved more into the old school kind of tennis in recent years uh, with the with the slicing and the serve and volleys and coming into the net. And at the moment, I think when you're looking at the players that can step up, the first thing you have to ask is who has the depth in the game, the more old school game style uh, that gives them options when they're, when they're not feeling at their best and they have to to try a plan B and that kind of thing. Uh, because we have moved on, and I think you know, you may say you've got Canadian bias, but Bianca Andreescu is the front runner for me at the moment uh, because she has all those aspects of her game. You know, she can be the power player when she needs to be, uh, but she's also got the tremendous uh, backhand slice to, to get her back into things when yep. when she's been pushed around. Um, she handled herself tremendously in that U.S. Open final against Serena, and you know, 2019, beginning of 2019. Not many people have heard of her at all, and yet she competed in the few times she was able to compete because she's been injured a lot. She competed as if she's been at the top for a long time. So I, I think players with that kind of game style, um, and maybe you didn't mention is Ashley Barty, who's mm-hmm. world number one at the moment, and also you know has these tremendous assets to her game. She has a bursting repertoire. And uh, that's been evident for a long time. And the thing is, you know, Barty's not so young anymore. I guess she's heading into her her mid-20s. But the case is, with this kind of player, a lot of time um, they take longer to develop because they have so many aspects to their game that need to be worked on, that need to be brought to fruition. And therefore, you do see them peaking a little bit later in their careers. So... Um, the likes of Katie McNally um, is still getting started, but she has a similar game style, has been inspired by Barty. So I'll be interested to see what she does as she moves into her 20s. But the second thing I think you need to look at is mentality. And I wrote actually a piece recently on how the mentality is so often treated as secondary to the physical, but at this level, it's so often the deciding factor. I mean, I said before, the depth on the WTA, you look down those rankings and you see so many players that can challenge, that can pull off big upsets. It's all about the consistency and who can do it time and time again. Now, you mentioned Naomi Osaka before. She's fantastic. She won her first two Grand Slams back-to-back. Um, but at the moment, I think she's somewhat lacking compared to Barty and, and Andrescu in the mentality department. And it's not something I would have been saying 12 months ago because the mentality is where Barty's had to really step up to, to get to where she is. But I sensed some self-doubt with Osaka towards the, the back end before Corona steps in and interrupts proceedings. Uh, particularly, it was on display at the Australian Open, you know, when she, she lost to Coco Goff and, and couldn't put the ball in the court. Mm-hmm. And that just shows how crucial and how pivotal this mentality is because Osaka is hands down one of the most talented, the most able players on tour. She can beat anyone. She can step up to the plate and she can deliver. But if she doesn't have that self-belief and self-confidence, she will self-destruct. So, yeah, I think Barsi, Osaka and Andreescu are very much leading leading contenders for me. And it's for the two points I've mentioned, the mentality 
and the range in their game uh, that you have to take into consideration. But if I could mention a rising star, yeah. just because we're on Match Point Canada, <laughs> Layla Annie Fernandez. Oh, yes, we I love commentated, that name. Uh, yes, she, she is fantastic. You know, I commentated on a couple of her matches um, in February, uh, her first two rounds, and she went on to reach the final of the tournament and, and took Heather Watson down the wire. And I was so impressed by, I mean, she's still, you know, back end of her teens, but she's such a small girl, but she can pack a real tick. She gets herself back into the points. But something that really stood out for me was how she responds with her back against the wall in key mm-hmm. moments when she has to send second serves in, when she's down a break point. She takes a deep breath and she delivers. And when you look at how much she's already got in her game, you just have to think, wow, you know, if this girl can stay fit and healthy, which is something that Andrescu has to deal with at the moment, just being able to get on court, if she can look after her fitness, there is so much potential right there. And it had been a while before I'd looked at the player of that age and thought, we're seeing something here that really could become something special. Uh, but I did get that feeling with Fernandez, so it, it will be really interesting to see what comes of her in the, in the next two or three years. And it's a shame for her because she was gathering momentum. She had that win over Belinda Bencic and was really finding her stride before this break. So hopefully this doesn't throw her too much. Yeah, we, we hope so as well. And in fact, my, my co-host Mike McIntyre uh, interviewed Layla last week. And what mm. I always note about her is we've spoken with her a few times and met her in person. She's she's very quiet, soft-spoken, such such a nice girl. And then she, mm. step, she steps on court and she's fearless. Uh, and and that's, that's so impressive for someone who, you know, hasn't even turned 18 years old yet. Uh, she, she made the decision last year uh, of, of bypassing actually the, the junior U.S. Open and Wimbledon and, and going and, and playing a couple ITF events and playing home tournaments in Canada and Gatineau and, and doing the rounds in Quebec, getting a couple wins there and just, just building momentum and confidence. And I, I definitely think mm. that victory over Belinda Bencic was a, a huge turning point for her to win at Fed Cup in that environment, I think was, was vital. And as you said, I mean, that final against Heather Watson, we, we remember that, that second set tie break where she just would not back down, wouldn't go away. Wow. Uh, and for, yeah, for her to be doing that at such a young age is, is really impressive. So I, I have full confidence that she can pick up where she left off once uh, the sport does return. Um, mm. Another question that now someone obviously who's, who's not 17 anymore and, and actually closer to 40 years old is, is Serena Williams. And, uh, you know, the narrative for a while now is, has her been her quest and her chase of Margaret Court and that Grand Slam record. And it, it's very rare for Serena Williams, if you look at the trajectory of her career, to, to spot four consecutive Grand Slam finals losses in the last time, mm-hmm. you know, she's played in them. And I guess I just wonder for this break, is, is this something where actually it could be beneficial that, that it's actually gain time because she can rest her body and, and train a little bit, or is this lost time because uh, she is closer to 40 and we know how young the tour is right now? Yeah, it's actually, I think it's a tougher question than it appears on the surface because this is something that I've been asked about a lot and that I've been thinking about a lot myself over the past few weeks uh, because in times gone by, I think I would have said that it would be beneficial for Serena to have a bit of a break, you know, because she is, you know, she's not as young as she was and sometimes she needs that time to reset and to refocus. Uh, but what I would say here is that I haven't seen anything wrong really with her physical game in the couple of years since she's been back after giving birth. There were all these questions. Will her body have changed? Will she be able to adapt? 
will she be doing this differently, that differently, etc. But she's delivered, you know, for any other player, four Grand Slam finals uh, since coming back after giving birth would be monumental, incredible. But because mm-hmm. of Serena, we're surprised because she, she used to be untouchable at the back ends of these majors. Uh, what I've noticed particularly about those runs is that Serena has struggled in the finals with not having her first serve. It's been a, a repeating theme, I think, particularly in her matches against Halep and Andreescu last year at Wimbledon and the US Open, respectively, could not land a first serve, particularly when she needed to. And that really allowed those two to step up and attack her second serve and make her feel the moment. Um, and we're seeing it channels back to nerves, the, the root of nervousness and that mentality that was there at the back end of slams for Serena just seems to be crumbling slightly. And I think that's more the case for her. You know, it is not a physical issue. It is the mental issue of being so near and yet so far and facing these players who are consequently having more belief against her. I think Mm. it would be a bit silly to think that, you know, they're not looking at these results and thinking she is a bit more vulnerable at the back end of slams. So, I mean, I know I rambled a bit there, but to come back to your question, I I think that in in previous years, I would have said that this is a good thing for Serena, but in leading up to lockdown, which obviously we didn't know was coming, I was getting the feeling that Serena needed to play more because she hadn't been competing as much as she could have done and therefore wasn't getting to the position where she was in finals outside of majors and wasn't, I mean, you know, I know she's had so much experience, but I think it does make the difference to have that consistent match play to put yourself in those difficult mental situations and see how you deal with them. I mean, what she's been doing recently is, is pretty much just turning up for the slams and then she expects herself to suddenly be able to deal with that situation which yeah 10 years ago she used to be able to do that but you know the stakes are higher now the time Mm -hmm. is shorter and things have changed i don't doubt serena Um, i think that she still has the ability and she can still break that record it's just the case of you know whether whether she is too gets too used to being away from the rigors of competition because if this goes on for a long time it can be difficult to find your stride again and get back into the swing of things and you know she did have a decent run if we take away those losses and finals aside she did have a decent run going on you know ahead of the break so what interested me was I think I saw a quote from her the other day saying that she feels personally that this time has been beneficial for her and it's something her body might have needed Uh, that's coming from Serena, so I can't really... I have to take a word on that. Mm -hmm. And that was very interesting to me because I'd sort of had these thoughts in my mind and then she said something that almost contradicted that. But at the same time, you know, she's not going to voice any concerns she has because, you know, people are going to be listening. So (laughs) it's an interesting one. It could go either way, and I think it is a time-will-tell thing. But um, one way this is a a negative for Serena is, you know, these uh, potentially, you know, Wimbledon's out the window, U.S. Right. Open's looking uncertain. French Open's unpredictable. There, there are three Grand Slams there with Serena approaching 40 where she's not going to have the opportunity to even compete 
uh, for that 24th major, uh, and that's time she can't buy back. So in that in that respect, this, this isn't a great thing for her, really. Yeah, that's true. I, I think we have to view it as a very realistic po- possibility that w- we might not get any Grand Slam tennis for, for 2020. Uh, but mm. as you said, I, I did think Serena was actually, despite that that early Australian Open exit, I, I actually thought she was building a little bit of momentum. I thought it was big for her to win that that first title in uh, since 2017, actually, at the Australian Open, just winning Auckland at the front end of 2020. I thought that was uh, yeah. impor- important for her and, and getting more consistent match play outside of Grand Slams is, is also crucial for her. We'll, we'll finish with, with one final question because I have a couple players in mind and, and they're at that sort of late 20s stage uh, of their career, more so Simona Halep is than my, my other name, Garbina Muguruza. But a, mm. as we're looking for sort of younger players to take the mantle, we, we have a couple, uh, you know, solid veteran players in, in the two of them. And I, I'm curious your thoughts. Obviously, they're, they're both Grand Slam champions and, and they're both fantastic tennis players. Do you think when we're, you know, maybe looking 10 years back uh, that, that either one of these players, say a Halep or a Garbina Muguruza, can become an all-time great? It's a very interesting question. Uh, these two, have they've had such similar careers. I remember they broke through around the same time. Muguruza's slightly younger, I think. But um, back end of 2013, you know, they really started pushing through. Um, Halep's been marginally more consistent in terms of sustaining her ranking. Mm-hmm. Muguruza's peaked when she's needed to to win her couple of slams. And it's funny that they've even won the same two slams, albeit you know in different orders. Muguruza won the French Open and Wimbledon. Um, and have I got that right? No, Wimbledon and the Fr- either or, you know, they've both won the French Open and Wimbledon. Right. So that's very interesting. Um, I, I think, you know, it depends what we're calling an all-time great here because uh, both of them, like you say, two grandstand titles each. And for the consistency, really, that they've both shown, it's interesting that they've only managed to, to bag the two majors each. When we're referring to all-time greats, it often does come down to how many majors they've won. Because if you look at Agnieszka Radwanska, for example, she was very consistent for, for a good number of years, but never got that elusive major. Mm-hmm. Wozniacki has been world number one for countless weeks. But she got the one major before she called it quits at the beginning of this year. So it really depends what they can do over these next couple of years and whether they can seize the openings. Um, I have good feelings about Halep particularly after she won that Wimbledon title. Uh, you know, she has sustained her position in the rankings so well since back end of 2013 when she broke through. And, you know, traditionally, by by nature of her game, she is a counterpuncher. But in that match against Serena, she was able to, to change it up, you know, to um, go on the attack, to move Serena around, to do what she needed to do. And, you know, a big occasion for her, and she was able to deliver. I think prior to that, you know, she she had been stepping up the consistency a bit. Um, But like I say, it does come down to those major titles, because I think years down the line, people don't remember the, the years of consistency, the months of consistency. They remember the big ones. So uh, to answer the question properly, I think that, you know, for both of them, maybe Hallett more so. Um, I, I think there is the potential for them to go down in history and to be um, not in the league of Serena and Venus no. and, and other players further down the line and that kind of player. But, you know, to be up there and, and to be remembered and, and to be in these conversations where when people talk about, you know, the, the big names of times past, there's definitely potential for both of them. And, you know, with Muguruza having had 
uh, one or two disappointing seasons uh, to come back and make that Australian Open final at the beginning of this year, even though we're having the break now, that's incredibly positive for her and something that she should be able to build on when things come back into action. So, yeah, two two players there who are getting towards the, the end of their 20s somehow, where did the sign go, but still, you know, have a lot of promise and a lot of potential. Yeah, certainly, and they, they played a fantastic match, actually, in the semifinals of the Australian Open as, as well. Garbina Muguruza mm. coming uh, coming out with the victory there in, in straight sets, and uh, of course, Halep's still very, very strong in the rankings, as you mentioned, uh, second in the world, just behind Ashley Barty. Abigail, I want, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, on Matchpoint Canada this week. Uh, always a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to talk to you. There you have it, my interview with Abigail Johnson, and she has a great uh, YouTube page as well uh, called The Tennis Vlog and, uh, you know, covering a lot of different WTA conversations in this chat. And I was thrilled when she brought up the name Layla Annie Fernandez as one of the rising stars. I hadn't even mentioned her yet, and Abigail brought her up. Yeah, not one of the typical Canadians that the non-Canadian guests we have uh, go to, gravitate to, but... I think because Abigail does so many matches that are, you know, more on the fringe sometimes on the WTA and the smaller tournaments, she's familiar with these players that are coming up. She's familiar with the players that are outside the top 100, mm-hmm. 200, as, as Leila Annie was up until recently. And, and I think that's one of the things that impresses me the most about what she does is I'll be listening or watching some matches on WTA TV that I have a subscription to and I'll hear the voice and I'm like, hey, I know who that is. That's Abigail. We've talked to her before. Right. And she's talking about two players that I might not be super familiar with, but she's obviously done her research and done her homework. And that's what's landed her in this position is along the way, as she mentioned, she's impressed people with her knowledge and the notes that she takes and her level of preparedness. And so clearly she's going to be familiar with someone like Leila Annie Fernandez, who definitely we have been so impressed with over the last year or so in her big rise almost the top 100 on the WTA, but it was surprising. I did not expect that name to come out of her mouth when she was <laughs> speaking with you about what Canadian kind of caught her eye recently. Yeah, yeah, that was really exciting to hear. And uh, as as you said, uh, in terms of her preparation, uh, she's certainly worked hard over the last couple of years, kind of earning her spot uh, commentating these matches. And uh, I'm, I'm envious to, to see her do so well just at, at such a young age. Uh, she, she really deserves it. And I'm sure when we get back to live tennis, she'll be uh, frequently commentating matches again yeah and something in common with both our guests this week that i'm just thinking of actually is they both have to do their work solo in in most cases like abigail's hosting her own show on her own on youtube and the vlog that she's doing she's often in the commentary booth alone and that can't be easy uh to be doing commentary of a match where you don't have someone to go back and forth with and yet she does that so well and and for craig I mean, you and I know the challenges of doing a podcast. It's no easy feat, and it's wonderful. I mean, it's the best that we can rely upon each other and, and lean on each other, and it's mm-hmm. not just one of us doing the work. It's a 50-50 split, and for Craig, he's doing it all solo uh, now with his podcast. And so, yeah, just a huge level of, of respect for both of our guests, for the work that they do, the hours that they put in, and, and also uh, gives me a newfound appreciation for doing this with you and, and not having to do it solo. Yeah, yeah. I'm just having a memory now of uh, early, early on in this podcast when it was originally the Southpaw Slice, me handling one of the weeks uh, entirely alone without any kind of guest. It was a major challenge. Like you have to have a lot of preparation and have a lot of talking points ready, just speaking on your own about something uh, without anybody else to lean on for for 30 plus minutes can, can be very difficult. 
Yeah. And I, I mean, I talk to myself all the time at home as I'm, you know, here with my three kids and just like, you know, shouting out serenity now, <laughs> but those are different kinds of solo conversations. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, I think there was a week where, where you were gone and I was in the studio doing it on my own. And I'm yes. like, whoa, this is weird because it's not even my natural environment to be in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, at any rate, we've been uh, real good at uh, at sharing things and, and doing things uh, uh, evenly between us. And, and it's just great to have a, you know, a partner in crime here that uh, that we can both rely on in each other, man. So, yeah. Well, it's been it's been working out well, even though I haven't seen you in so long. It's um, you know I talk to you more often than than just about anybody throughout this <laughs> uh, this hiatus and this this pandemic. So um, yeah, on that note, uh, cheers to that. Yeah, cheers to that. It's been the same case for me, and uh, we've been fortunate as well to be getting all, all these great guests uh, through the weeks. And uh, Mike, I know you've secured uh, secured a terrific interview for our episode next week. Yeah, next week we're going outside of Canada again, uh, and we've got Ashley Harkle Road, who is a former American top 40 player on the WTA, and, and she hit the top 40 at a young age. I believe she was 18 when she entered uh, that level of the ranking. So we'll discuss her, her rapid rise, and then she also left the game uh, pretty young, so we'll talk about that, and looking forward to having her on the podcast for the very first time. And uh, in the weeks to come, even with no live tennis yet or no live ATP WTA tennis, um, yeah, we've got some great guests coming up and we're going to continue to to work our butts off to bring you guys some some great episodes. So please keep tuning in and sharing and retweeting and liking and any feedback you can offer us up uh, wherever you listen to your podcast reviews, that sort of thing would also be hugely appreciated because, um, yeah, there's not a whole lot of reward on, on our end right now with the podcast. Uh, in, in other ways, so anytime we see you know that kind of feedback or, or positive comments, it really uh, helps us to keep uh, keep pushing through and, and doing our best here. Yeah, certainly, very nicely said. Thanks again uh, for listening to Matchpoint Canada, and we will speak with you next time.